Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Rosalenko, director of the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center in Karen and Quinlan Hospice. And I want to welcome you to Grief Matters, conversations about life and death. No subject is off limits and no topic is taboo. I want to invite you to send in your questions about anything end of life, dying, death, and grief. Hello, and welcome to a special Grief Matters podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by author and associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, Mary Frances O'Connor, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab in investigating the effects of grief on the brain and body. So hello, Mary Frances, welcome, and thank you very much for being here. Hi, Rob. I really appreciate you having me. So my first question is, how, how did you become interested in this field, and what inspired you to write such a fascinating book on this subject? Oh, that's very kind. Um, you know, I'm, I think as a psychologist, I think uh, it can be hard for us to understand our own motivations sometimes. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, neuroscience has fascinated me since I was an undergraduate. The idea that you can sort of look inside this black box of the brain and, and importantly to me, how, how is it that we can encode these relationships in our life, these loving feelings, the person, you know, our one and only, how does all that get encoded to me is just fascinating. And then of course, the flip side of that, how does the brain come to understand that this person who's so vital to us is gone? Yeah. Um, but I will say that there is a piece of it that isn't exclusively, you know, that sort of scientific curiosity, which is that when I was 13, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And, you know, she lived another 13 years, which her oncologist used to call his first miracle. Hmm. Uh, but it meant that in that time, I experienced a lot of grief and witnessed a lot of grief uh -huh. in my house. And, and I think not so much because I necessarily wanted to understand my own grief, but I wanted to understand what could I have done to help her with her grief and, and the people around me and just understanding not what grief feels like, but the how and the why it's yeah. so painful and takes so long. These have meant, you know, I've persisted, I guess, in studying this and interviewing hundreds of people now who have experienced this loss. Mm -hmm. I've definitely recommended the book to people because uh, one thing I liked about it was that it, it broke it down in ways that were a little bit easier to understand. Um, right. right from the beginning, I think there was something that you, you wrote in there about how the brain basically wants to solve problems. Yep. And I've used that line. I've definitely stolen that line many times. Good. Well, this is what our brain is doing. It, it's, yeah. it, it may not always make sense, but it's trying to solve this problem for yeah. which there really isn't a solution. And so that's yeah. going to take some time. Yeah. Um, so one of the more interesting parts of your book describes how the typical five stages of grief can be mistakenly considered a prescription for how to grieve rather than just a description of how one may grieve. Could you expand on that point? Because I, I, I really thought that that was a great way of talking about the five stages of grief, but not being limited to it. 
That's right. And I think, you know, every person experiences grief in their own way. And so, um, I, I'm a big fan. I, I really have a lot of respect for Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was, you know, a revolutionary who said, you know, we could talk to people who are dying. We could ask them how they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think because of that, she did what all scientists do when they're first sort of trying to study something systematically is she described right? She described what people were telling her the experience of grief was like for them. And, and it does, right? Grief does include anger and denial and, and depression and acceptance Absolutely. and yeah. right. Yeah. But, but I think it has been used as though it was a linear set of steps to go through. And I'll tell you, I think when asked why, you know, when I sort of ask myself, why has this persisted for so long? Because she mm -hmm. wrote those stages in 1969, and mm -hmm. science has come a long way since 1969. Yeah. <laughs> but when I ask myself, why has this persisted? I think it's partly because this is something I talk about in the book. When we're first in that acute grief, we just want to know when will this be over? Yeah. That there's some, you know, please give me some steps I can go through so that I know there's an end. And so I understand the desire for there to be this like really clear cut sort of linear path. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think of grieving as a form of learning and learning is messy. You know, mm -hmm. you don't always know yeah. what you're going to learn or how you're going to learn it or who's going to be there when you're learning it. Mm -hmm. So I think think what we know from scientific research where we're not so much just looking at what grief feels like but how does it change over time mm. so looking at the same person across multiple points we know that overall acceptance tends to increase and yearning tends to decrease now that's not in a you know in a direct line it's no. sort of up and down but in general those seem to be the flip sides of the coin and when that is happening, we think of that as typical with a huge variation around it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's what I try to tell people when we talk about the five stages of grief, because that seems to be the one thing that everyone seems to know is I said it, it's it's kind of like the directions to a bookcase. It's yeah. it's not you do step one and then step two and then there's five steps and then you're done with the bookcase. Right. You may end up going from anger to bargaining, to denial, to bargaining, to anger, to acceptance. And then the next day you start all over again. It's right. really not. And there's also anxiety and other yeah. stuff in there too. Yeah. 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 So it is, it, I like the idea of, of looking at it as not such a, a linear path, yeah. but yeah. kind of a journey up and yeah. down, back and forth. Well, and I think, you know, one of the difficulties that I see that people experience is, you know, it's as though there's some big <laughs> a grief counselor that I am friends with says, it's like there's some big book of grief rules, <laughs> you know, and almost everyone thinks they're breaking them, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. though there's no such thing, right? And so I think just knowing if you don't have anger, that's okay. There's nothing yeah. wrong with your grief. You know, you haven't missed out on some step. It's just your experience. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that is where it can become problematic is when people are applying it to themselves or others as though there's something wrong with the person if they don't match up somehow to this yeah. idea. Yeah, I definitely have heard 
um, I don't think I'm doing this right. Yeah. And I'll say, I think the only way to do it wrong is not to do it at all. So whatever journey you're on, that's your own journey. Perfect. So you made a distinction in the book between the terms grief and grieving, uh, almost like one being a moment in time and another being a process. So why do you think that that's an important distinction? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've been studying grief now for over 20 years and I did the first neuroimaging study of grief. And, you know, we had folks who were bereaved bring us a picture of the person who had died. And, and so we were able to look while they're laying in the scanner, we showed them the photo on goggles and we were able to look at their brain activity while they were looking at this person who had passed away Mm -hmm. and while they were looking at a stranger say, for example, and able to detect brain differences, right? So that grief is associated with specific brain activity that we, that supports, you know, creation and experience of that emotion and those thoughts and feelings. I realized after a while of doing some studies that I was studying grief and there's nothing wrong with that. Grief is a great thing. Grief, you can think of, it's that noun, right? It's the thing that overwhelms you in the moment as mm-hmm. you described it, right? But I wasn't studying grieving because grieving is a verb. It's how grief changes over time. And so, you know, from a research design perspective, you'd have to measure the same person mm-hmm. multiple times, right? To see what was changing in the brain over time. And so while I was making this distinction kind of as a scientist, I came to discover it was very helpful for people who were experiencing grief and grieving because grief is just the natural response to loss. When you become aware that someone so important to you is no longer in your life, you're going to feel grief, but yeah. that's going to be true six days, six months, six years, six decades mm-hmm, mm-hmm. after the person dies, isn't it? That's just grief. Yeah. You're going to have those moments. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your grieving. You haven't done anything wrong, yeah. even though you may have an intense wave of grief sort of out of nowhere years mm-hmm. later. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, One of the points that you touched on in the book discusses feeling grief over famous people. I love that. I did not expect to, when I saw that, I'm like, ooh, this is going to be good. Uh, (laughs) I I found it really relatable. Um, And here's why. So when John Denver died, I guess it was a a while ago now, but I remember crying about it. Yeah. So I never met the man. Right. But his music was such an important part of my childhood. My mom used to play his music all the time. Yeah. Um, and I thought of that again because Olivia Newton-John just passed away. I, right. I believe it was last week. Yeah. So I'm sure others are feeling that same sense of loss yeah. for someone that they've never even met before. Why is that? Why do you yeah. think that that is? I think this is really fascinating. And one of my graduate students became interested in it. And so we we looked a little more into something that is is termed parasocial grief meaning mm. next to social right next to someone you not, not someone you know but next to someone you know so to speak and here's the thing you know we think about the fact that there has to be a bond in order for you to experience loss 
right? So you have to, you know, we fall in love with our baby or we fall in love with our spouse or, right? And so it makes sense when those people are taken away that that bond is is ruptured or transformed. And so we have the the grief that comes from that. And so you might think, well, you know, you and John Denver never had a bonding experience. So how can you feel grief that is clearly so true, right? Clearly it is grief. But I think it's exactly as you say. So those bonding moments happen in a in a somewhat different way. You think of all those times that you listened to them. And, you know, in attachment, you think of this as being sort of your one and only, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who deeply understands you and you trust them. Well, think about the musician or the artist or the poet or, or even actor mm-hmm. who at a particular point in your life they're saying things, they understand you in a way that no one else has, right? Like they, they are conveying how you feel in a way that means they really understand your experience. And I think that is the type of bonding then that in the absence, when that person is gone, we know we're not going to get any more art from Mm -hmm. them, for example. And also there's a piece of who we were then you know, a piece of ourselves that yes. ourself that dies as well. You were talking about being a young person, you know, yeah. in the house and yeah. hearing the music. And there's a piece of that that you then sort of lose. Yeah. That, and that does make a lot of sense when you look yeah. at it that way. Uh, last question. So I've worked with parents who are grieving the loss of one of their adult children. And I've often used that concept of phantom limb sensations in trying to help connect um, with what they're describing. Could you talk about that a little bit, how you've used that phantom limb sensation idea with discussing grief? Yeah. So, you know, phantom limb syndrome, for those who might not know it, is a very neurological condition. And and what it is, is that when someone has uh, a limb amputated, perhaps a lower leg or arm, they experience sensations after the surgery. So after the amputation has taken place. So they often experience itching or even pain. And so this has been a real curiosity, not curiosity, but real concern for clinicians mm-hmm. for a long time. How do we treat something where the limb isn't even there, you yeah. know? Yeah. And the discovery has been that, you know, all of our all of our body is mapped in the brain, right? There's different nerves that are associated with every part of our body. And that's how, when we experience a sensation, we can tell you it's in my foot and not my pinky, you know? Mm -hmm. What happens, it seems, is the brain has not yet rewired. And so sensations are being stimulated in the brain part of the arm, So the part of your brain that represents your arm are still being stimulated, even in the absence of nerves that are connected to that arm that's now gone. And so it is a true experience. People really are experiencing itching or pain. And we even know now why, because our brain has this really detailed map of Mm. our body. So the analogy here, and I don't just mean a metaphorical analogy, But current neuroscience believes that we probably map ourselves this way, as I've described, but that we probably map 
others this way as well, especially mm -hmm. others with whom we have attachment bonds. And so in the brain, we have a sense of me and a sense of you, but also a sense of we. So that there are you know, parts of the brain that are devoted to the overlap between you and I. So this part is really clearly, quite clearly worked out in neuroscience that the brain does this. It, it has this representation of the overlap. So while it isn't as clearly worked out, the, the follow-on to that is that when a person dies, that when we haven't yet remapped that mm. this person is not in the material world, we continue to have all of the emotions and even thoughts and, and behaviors, right? When you pick up your phone to text them yeah. and then you realize, yeah. of course, you can't do that because they've died. So your brain takes a long time to rewire, to sort of update to the reality now. And that's going to take some time and it's going to be painful because every time you become aware again, of that, of the fact that they've died or what it means for your life that they have died, you're going to have grief, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that's, you were talking about the difference between grief and grieving. And then that episode, that episode of grief comes up again. That's right. Yeah. And yet over time with grieving, which is the verb, right? With grieving, we know that grief changes over time. And so it changes in part because it tends to be less frequent and less intense, even as it still happens. And, and that is partly, I think, as the brain is sort of working itself around to understanding, oh, I'm better able at predicting their absence now. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But I will say also the experience of the feeling of grief often changes for people. And I mean it in this way say the first hundred times you have that wave of grief. I think you, you know, people describe this is unbearable. I don't think I'm going to get through this moment and I can't imagine this is going to keep happening. You know, yeah, yeah. the hundred and first time it may feel just as bad, but it may be familiar, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so that's a change. That's something we learn. Ah, I am a person who has these feelings. And how do I continue to restore a meaningful life? Given that I'm going to be overwhelmed by grief sometimes, how do I, how do I make that work? And that's the learning. How can I manage it? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. It's so yeah. fascinating. I, I love this book. I wanted to grab it here. Of course, I'm I used so to put glad. it right in the background, but so Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, it is called the grieving brain. Um, the Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Thank you so much for being here and for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, keep up the good work. I hope that there's going to be more information to come from you because it's it's been great, really. I really appreciate that, Rob. And I appreciate you bringing this conversation to people. My whole goal was to, you know, I'm steeped in this information. I want to put it in the hands of people who can use it, apply it to their own lives. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that everyone appreciates you doing so. So thank you very much again. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you'd like more information on disenfranchised grief in particular, or any grief issues, including options for counseling, please feel free to call us at the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center at 973-948-2283 
or you can contact us through the Karen and Quinlan hospice.org slash grief dash matters dash podcast website and reach us through that website. So I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Take care of yourself.